0: Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Roland Clark, and I'm here today on the New Books Network talking to Maria Felina, who's an Assistant Professor of Political History and Political Uses of the Past at the University of Utrecht. She specializes in Eastern Europe in intellectual history, nationalism, and the history of religion and politics. Welcome to the program, Maria. Um,
1: hi, Roland, and um, thank you very much for having me.
0: So Maria, this is a book about the Serbian Orthodox Church, but it actually tells us a lot about Serbian nationalism and the difficulties involved in creating a, a unified Yugoslav identity during the 1920s and 30s. Why are these two things related?
1: Um, yes, so the, the Serbian Orthodox Church is a very important actor in the book, but this is really, it's not a church history. Um, I think I follow three sort of big lines of inquiry and I show how they are interconnected and how the relationship changes over time. So the first one is the relationship between religion and Serbian nationalism. Um, So nation building, nation state building, church building, institutional processes. Um, So think about questions how did Serbian cultural figures, sort of the national canon builders, how did they think about religion? And then how, how did church leaders think about this nation building process? And here, of course, in the uh, one of the big questions was whether it is religion or language that is the primary marker of national identity. And if you think about ethnic and linguistic composition of the Balkans, the answer to this question leads to vastly different political projects. So this is one big red line that goes throughout the book. So The second one is about how the Yugoslav state building and nation building, and these are two different processes, are linked to religion and in particular to the question of religious diversity. Yugoslavia was not only ethnically diverse, but it also included multiple religious communities. And these communities, in their turn, are also heterogeneous. And I discuss in the book how all these complexities played out. My focus is on the Serbian Orthodox Church and Serbian Orthodox Christianity. But what I'm trying to show also, it is impossible to understand the dynamic if you don't look at the Yugoslav state as a whole. So there is also quite a lot about Catholics and Muslims and how they interact with each other. Um. And finally, the third important line is the relationship between the Serbian Orthodox Christianity and political modernity. And I think it's sort of, it's framing all the other questions. And I think we're going to talk about that later on in more detail. So it is about the Serbian Orthodox Church, but it's also about so much more than just institutional or church
0: history. Um, Yeah, which is what makes it interesting to historians of nationalism and historians of politics. And so you've got a wide range of primary sources, but nothing from the archives of the Serbian Orthodox Church. Um, what is that? Were those archives just not important?
1: Um, yes, well, that is um, a, a downside. I mean, it's a pity. The church archives are virtually inaccessible. You. So when I was sitting, or rather when I was trying to access the archives, um, I was told that on the one hand, you need a bunch of recommendation letters, including letters from archbishops or whatever. And even then, it's not a guarantee that you will get access to archival documents. There are, of course, you know, church-affiliated researchers who do get access to some of these documents and that they're doing a pretty good job in putting together institutional histories. And there are a couple of very well-established Serbian researchers, in particular Admila Radic, who have a very sort of long-established relationships with the institution. Um, she's not working for the Orthodox Church, obviously. Um, she's very, very critical of them. Um, so she's been doing um, a lot of work getting glimpses from the archive. Uh, archival material. Um, the technical problem, as I've been told, I haven't seen the archives, I haven't, I wasn't allowed in, was that they're, they're, they're not described and catalogued. So essentially, like it's, you know, rooms with boxes, and um, it's very difficult to work through them. Um, so I spent most of the time sitting in the library of the Serbian Culture cave, which is located in the same building as the archives. And after a while, the librarians actually started bringing in pieces of materials from the archive and just showing it to me. Some of that was relevant. Some of that was not really relevant. Um, So the the book is published mostly on published sources, periodicals. I mean, it deals a lot with public discourse. So it makes sense to rely on published um, material. And then I make use of the state national archives Archives of Yugoslavia, um, which provides interesting materials to illustrate certain points, uh, but ultimately, I think, do not change fundamentally the argument that has been built already on the published material. It would be amazing to have access to the church archives, uh, but we don't. So somebody else needs to go and fight that fight. So hopefully, maybe they'll find things that will completely contradict what i wrote maybe not i'll I'll be very curious
0: um yeah one day in the distant future hopefully um so to give us just to start the story off um to give us a sense of where serbian orthodoxy stood at the beginning of the 20th century can you tell us a bit about what role the church played in serbian society when this region was ruled by the ottoman empire
1: um yeah well that's a Short question to answer, Uh, we're talking about a fairly long period. So the last urban principality loses independence to the Ottomans in the middle of the 15th century. And then the first semi-autonomous modern state structures emerge in the first third of the 19th century. Um, So we have many centuries to cover. Uh, Well, in a short answer things changed. They weren't always great, but they were not always horrible either. Um, For my story, for the story of the 20th century, uh, the important bit is that um, there is an established national narrative in, in Serbia, but also in historiography, that the Serbian Orthodox Church helped maintain Serbian cultural and national identity during the centuries of the Ottoman rule in absence of nations. And independent political structures i'm not an early modernist so i'm not discussing whether and how it was actually true and how these things were organized um but i am really interested in showing how this idea became the standard narrative and um what surprised me actually to an extent was that the narrative of this you know um very crucial role that the Serbian Orthodox Church played, was established in the 19th century in parallel with state-building efforts. Um, and It comes from within the church when they're trying to argue for their own importance vis-a-vis this new emerging state structures. Um, If we're talking about the imperial context, so pre-independence, church institutions are weakened, uh, institutionally, they lost their autonomy. The medieval Serbian um uh, was, was located in Pec in southern Serbia is um, abolished. And importantly, in the 18th century, the center of intellectual life has moved to the Habsburg Empire. So we're talking about actually two imperial contexts, not just the Ottoman, but also Habsburg, and it has long lasting impact that is felt in the 19th, 20th century. Um, And when the new state begins to emerge following the first and second Serbian uprisings um, in the early 19th century, the Serbian Orthodox Church has to find its place in this new political circumstances. Uh, And on the one hand, they want independence from the ecumenical Patriarchate in Istanbul or Constantinople. Um, And on the other hand, they need to establish some kind of functional relationship with this new secular political authority which is to become the serbian state um so sometimes the interests overlap the state and the church sometimes they contradict each other and this is the story of the 19th century
0: so once serbia does get independence um what happens to the church are they able to benefit from independence to increase their influence do they get material support um how do they interact with the state during the 19th century
1: um yeah. So um, the church works on becoming what they call a national church, independent from Istanbul. So they want to become autocephalos officially in terms of church jurisdiction. Um, and they want to become indispensable for this new emerging modern state. Um, so 19th century is this long period of transition from imperial context to nation state context. Um. And there's several interesting things here and important things that I want to highlight. One is that we see in the documents from the second half of the 19th century that the church leaders are using more or less this exact phrasing, we must become a national church. Well, assuming that, I mean, we're not a national church yet, but this is our goal. But then this established narrative would have us believe that the church actually had been the national church all along. So, and, so this is one of the aspects that I spent quite a lot of time um, discussing and showing how this narratives, narrative is being built. Um, and one of the main reasons why they need to build this idea that they are a national church and they always have been very important is essentially because they need money. Um, they've been underfunded for a very long time during the Ottoman um, period, obviously. Um, And now that they have this new nation state, they're like, okay, well, um, our parish priests need money uh, because now they work together with their parishioners in the fields and they don't have the time and energy to uh, preach and write sermons and take care of their parishioners. So the church hierarchy in the late 19th century is more or less begging the Serbian state to make them civil servants and just pay them, like fixed salary. And the state is very reluctant to do, they don't actually agree to do that. They provide funding, but they never make them civil servants. Um, so this financial back and forth is um, a very interesting. Um, And the arguments the the church leadership is using, they're saying, well, uh, without us, there would be no nation state. So they're making themselves more important in their own eyes and they're trying to make themselves important in the eyes of this new state. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's why now like you were indebted to us. You have now to pay your debt back and support us financially. Um, I mean, and their financial state is really poor. They're in ruins. Like the number of priests, the educational level is very, very low. Um, The monasteries have been in uh, decay. So the traditional centers of religiosity and knowledge. So they do have a lot of work that needs to be done and they're doing it slowly. Um, So I can't say that that they they get zero support, but they want more and they could have gotten more. And um, so it's not an easy relationship. And structurally, there is a bigger issue, and and that is that the borders of this new Serbian nation-state and the church jurisdictions do not overlap. So Belgrade, uh, where the metropolitan of Belgrade is established, is the new official center of the political power of the Serbian principality and Serbian kingdom, and it is also technically the main administrative center for the Serbian Orthodox Church. But the intellectual church center for the Serbian Orthodox community has been in the Habsburg Empire, in Vojvodina, in Novi Sad, in um, Sremskij Karlovci, and even in um, Budapest. Um, so there's this rivalry between these two centers. And the Habsburg Serbs have their own ideas about how this church-state relationship needs to be organized. They don't want to be subjugated to Belgrade. Plus, we have all these other territories that are still under the Ottoman control throughout the 19th century um, in Bosnia, in southern Serbia. um, And so the institutional landscape is very, very complicated. So it makes it difficult for the Serbian Orthodox Church to implement reforms um, and support their priests um, and monks and uh, parishioners in um, the flock in ways that would like to which is said to be one of the reasons why they are initially enthusiastic about this idea of building yugoslavia because like oh finally we're going to have all our lands in one state at least and then we'll see what happens um so this is very briefly i think what's happening in the 19th century
0: uh all of which sounds like there's a lot of problems for the church economically politically um, possibilities as well but they react to these problems by rejecting certain aspects of modern life and politics don't they um what was it in particular about modernity that they said they didn't like
1: um well i mean yes they they're very critical of it and they're very suspicious of it um and i don't think they reject it altogether as in they don't want to go back in the past like they're not like let's go back to the middle ages um the so I don't want to present them as sort of retrograde uh, people who are rejecting any technical innovations or science or any of the benefits that the you know, 19th and 20th century uh, bring um, to them. Um, but they are very suspicious and they're mostly mm, wondering, and I think they're quite afraid about so what they perceive as a threat of secularization. Um, so on the one hand, that means the loss of their position and importance in society, but the, the, they are also genuinely concerned about the state of society. They perceive it as as crisis, especially after the um the, the, the first world war, so the interwar period. Um, and so they are very critical of uh, what they call materialism, atheism, sort of de-christianization, I mean it's not a unique Serbian story, we see this across Europe, I think it's a pan-European um, phenomenon, and they're also critical of liberalism or what they call liberalism, and of course communism, and they're very concerned by everything they see from uh, Russia and the Soviet Union, um, all the oppressions, uh, repressions against the Russian Orthodox Church. There's a big influx of Russian conservative immigration um, into Yugoslavia. So they bring the stories of all those horrors. Um, so they're like, they're not embracing this new, you know, post-World War I spirit of liberal democracy because they think it's just damaging to society and to them. And it's primarily the threat of what they see as a threat of secularization.
0: Um, history's. I remember um, having a baby and kids when you've, as soon as you get used to their feeding patterns and their sleeping patterns and stuff, they grow up a little bit and then you've got to start all over again. Um, and so the, the church is going through all this, but then after the First World War, someone creates the kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes, which guarantees freedom of worship and religion, religious equality for all of the citizens. What does this mean in practice for the Serbian Orthodox Church? How do they react to the creation of the yeah. new state?
1: Um, that is a great question. Um, so I think, well, there are multiple questions here, so we'll need to unpack. Um, one is, what do they think about this new state? Um, and in the beginning, as I mentioned, th- they're quite supportive. They think it's a great idea. Um because they think it will allow them to unify um, their institu- the, the institution. Um, so they're working towards what they call the establishment of the patriarchate of Pech. I mean, it's, it has very little to do with the medieval institution. Um, and I mean, there's a symbolic continuity, but it's essentially it's a new modern institution um, in terms of church structures and administrative um, rules. Um, and So they're talking about, they're embracing this idea of liberation and unification. So we're, we're liberating the lands and the people from the centuries of imperial oppression, um, and we're unifying them, the old Yugoslavs, in this um, new Yugoslav, uh, or the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes, as it was called, until 1929. Um, so their attitude towards the idea of Yugoslav nation is... Um, a bit more complicated. They're like, yes, maybe Yugoslav nation, we're not really opposed to it. Um, but they're not really ready to abandon their specific Serbian national identity. For, for the for the I mean, there are they're always marginal and very weak voices that talk about, oh, maybe we should remove the the word Serbian, from the name of the church institution, Can we talk about the Yugoslav Orthodox Church, but these are absolutely marginal voices. Like the the, the the majority is like, no, this is the Serbian Orthodox Church. This is who we are. This is what we always have been. Um, so yes, we're gonna be, we're gonna continue to be the Serbian Orthodox Church within the framework of the Yugoslav state. Um, and in the beginning, they're quite like, okay, you know, it's fine. We're gonna make it work. And of course, then they face a number of challenges. One is that, uh, what you mentioned, the principle of religious equality. Yugoslav state, of course, is built in this post-World War I Wilsonian moment. Um, the So Yugoslav founding fathers, state builders have to present themselves to the um, European powers um, in Paris when they're negotiating the terms of peace treaties and everything. Um, so they have to commit to liberal democratic values at least on paper and one of the things they have to commit to is the principle of religious equality and minority protection and they do it on paper Um, and then the state is not quite sure how they are supposed to implement this in reality because they have highly heterogeneous Population. So, and that results in a very strange situation when, for the first 10 years of the existence of the Yugoslav state, um, there is no uniform r- legislation that would regulate religious life um, from the state point of view. The church is busy building and unifying its own institution and they're successfully reestablishing or establishing the patriarchate. Um, in the early 1920s. It's a long process. They completed by 1924. Um, But the state basically fails to pass the necessary legislation uh, that would explain in clear terms the church-state relationship, not just for the Serbian Orthodox um, community, but also for the Catholics, for the Muslims, for everybody else. Um, And so so the principle of religious equality is there, but it's not really... I mean, it's it's very hard to implement it in in practical um, terms. Um, And the church, of course, needs to come to terms um, with the fact that they're not the only religious institution anymore. They're not the only religious community anymore. There are Catholics, and there's a sizable Muslim community. And the relationship between them, I mean, I touch upon it in the book, um, it's not the central part of my story, but I think it's important as the general frame um, that this relationship between these re- three kind of key religious communities in Yugoslavia um, is not always straightforward. They come closer and then they sort of uniting in a way against the common enemy be it communism or sometimes the Yugoslav state and then, of course, they also compete against each other. Um, so. I think it's a very complicated process of the Serbian Orthodox Church uh, finding its place in this new state structures, um, in this new political and social cultural setting in the early 1920s. But their primary focus immediately after the First World War is on rebuilding the institution.
0: And it's even more complex because, so as we were talking before the interview, you mentioned that not everyone in the church speaks with the same voice. There's lots of different opinions coming and going. Um, how did Orthodox theologians and church leaders imagine philosophically, theologically, the relationship between church and state in the 1920s?
1: So, I mean, in the 1920s, they're not really thinking about it very much. Uh, they, they have other more pressing um, issues. But if they do think about it, um, they, so if they think in terms of cooperation with the state, um, and in public discourse, they present themselves as being useful to the, uh, the Yugoslav cause. Um, when they argue for more public visibility or for when they oppose some particular pieces of legislation or public, public state policy, Um, It mostly comes when we're talking about education or public celebrations or state holidays, things like that, so it's on the symbolic level. Um, They would always, in the 1920s, frame it as, well, we we can be so good for you, the Yugoslav state builders. Um, uh, We're going to help cement the foundations of the state, and that is why you need to respect us, and that is why you need to support us um and provide certain freedoms and do not infringe on our decision-making autonomy um um, so to discuss our own internal disputes and the state of course wants them to uh kind of fall in line the state has so many other issues um uh, you know land reform um political opposition the parliament is in disarray so they're like okay we, we don't have the energy and the time to deal with all these religious institutions who always want something from us um we just need to regulate them and then they're going to fall in line and they're going to the go do as told and they're not going to bother us anymore and i think this is the big mistake that the yugoslav state um officials um make they underestimate the importance of religion for politics and public life, and the power of religious institutions um, once they are rebuilt after the um, First World War. Um, so the actually, the, the, the church, the leaders and the church intellectuals and affiliated religious intellectuals who are not necessarily technically part of the church hierarchy, they, when they start thinking about, in more theoretical terms, about the state and the nation, that actually comes already in the 1930s, when they become to be disappointed in this Yugoslav project, because they are quite, understandably, I must say, um, they, they feel that, well, they have held up their end of the bargain. They have supported the Yugoslav state. They have instructed their um, clergy to... Um, sing praises to the king and mark all national holidays with church sermons and encourage their parishioners um, to know all the things. Um, and then they don't get, in return, the level of support um, and encouragement um, that they expected from the state structures. Um, so um, there is a fundamental disagree- conceptual disagreement between the state and by state, I mean sort of the the the, the sort of the ministry. They have the ministry for religions um, until 1929, um, and they have a range of ministers who come and go. But the sort of key civil servant uh, body remains more or less intact. And these are people who are charged with the task of um, addressing disputes, directing financial aid, um, so sort of all of these things. Um, and the Serbian Orthodox Church, but also the Catholics and Muslims by the late 1920s, early 1930s, feel very disenchanted. They're like, this is not not good for us as leaders of religious communities. This state is not doing us any favors. So they're like, okay, maybe we should stop supporting it so enthusiastically. They don't turn against it technically. So they don't act actively, you know, engage in revolutionary activities. Um, But they turn to support, to supporting other political actors who in their turn are sort of less uh, enthusiastic about the Yugoslav future.
0: Um, One of the ways that you, one of the really interesting ways you illustrate this sort of rivalry relationship between the church and state is by talking about the the story of the legacy of Peter Petrovich Njegosh. Um, so he's a Serbian Orth, Serbian Orthodox saint, and the state is trying to promote him as a national hero. What's wrong with that? Um, surely they should have been happy that one of their saints was getting more attention. Why? Why were they uncomfortable with the way the state was talking about Njegosh? Um, yeah.
1: So Njegosh, of course, is uh, sort of a Montenegrin. Um, leader of church and state, he unifies in his person, uh, you know, church leadership and Montenegrin sort of statehood, if you wish, um, and he's the great um, national poet. Um, so he wrote this epic uh, about the anti-Ottoman struggle. Um, and so the the controversy i think that you're referring to happens in the early 1920s when um uh, the the remain his remains need to be reburied um and the controversy is about the design for the mausoleum um that should mark his uh, uh so burial grounds um, um king alexander um who is uh, a great admirer of Nyagosh, commissions the design for the mausoleum to uh, Mestrovich, who is a renowned modernist sculptor and a very conscious Yugoslav, pro-Yugoslav. Um, and King Alexander Karađorđević finances from his personal funds. So he is ready to finance the whole thing because it's, the project has been delayed for many, many years because of underfunding. Um, so, you know, not um, unusual. And when, when the design is revealed, the Serbian Orthodox Church is shocked and um appalled, and they say, well, there is nothing in this design, and, and it's true, there is nothing in the design, which would present Nyagosh either as a Christian, as a church leader, or as a Serb. It's completely devoid of any references to religiosity, to his uh, ethnic or national identity. It's a very modernist abstract thing. They call it pagan. Um, And they um, actually managed to put enough pressure on the king so that the king abandons the design, even though he personally quite likes it. And a very different mausoleum is being built built on Mount Lofchen. uh, when uh, Negos is reburied. So I think this is a nice illustration, I think. And the, I mean, we can find more examples when the king, in this case, is trying to, to reappropriate some of the already established national heroes. In this sense, in this case, somebody who also happens to be a very important figure for the church, and make them into a Yugoslav unifying figures. Um, and the church is resisting this transformation because they're like, oh, oh, but if he becomes a Yugoslav, then he stops being a Serb and we can't have that. I mean, a very different issue is whether he would be accepted by other non-Serbian um, parties in Yugoslavia as a Yugoslav hero. We have from other examples of similar attempts of, of re format Serbian national heroes into Yugoslav national heroes uh and they're being rejected by croats slovenes bosnians uh, quite understandably so and the, and this is this is a long process of trying to find you know for for new yugoslav state for the new yugoslav nation you need to build the new national canon you need to find these symbolic figures um, who can be recognized as our own by different groups within society um, who can unite rather than divide. They, 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 they shouldn't be divisive. They shouldn't um, inspire conflict. They should bring people together. And it turns out it's very difficult to find um, these unifying figures who will be accepted by everybody uh, because you have such a diverse and complex state. Um, we're talking about not just ethnic or uh, uh, religious um, differences, but we're also talking about people who fought against each other on different sides during the First World War. Um, and they somehow need just not only live in the same state, but also you know celebrate the same holidays and um, the same figures. So all of this is very, very difficult. Um, it takes the um, as Yugoslav legislators um, a good part of a decade to establish you know, the basic list of national holidays. Um, so in that context, a dispute over uh, one sort of memorial mausoleum um, is just one of the examples of the many problems that they're facing.
0: Um, and the king you mentioned before, of course, is King Alexander I and Yugoslav, political parliamentary democracy is not working very well by the late 1920s and so he abolishes it and replaces it with a royal dictatorship in 1929 that's a pretty big political change how does the church roll with that
1: um that is a very interesting story i think um they i mean i can't really say whether they support or reject it they do both um they support the dictatorship because they're not committed democrats they have no issue with the king abolishing the constitution, um, disbanding the parliament. They think that the parliament was completely dysfunctional and it was damaging to the state and to society. Um, so they, they, they're all in favor for you know a more so firm structures. Um, that is not an issue at all. Um, what they are opposing is the integral Yugoslavism that comes with the dictatorship. Um, so they don't want, as I mentioned, they don't want to abandon their Serbian identity. Um, and the, in terms of the church state re- legislation, what the um, dictatorship means for the church state, re- um, church state relationship is that the legislation is finally being passed. Um, once the parliament is disbanded. So there is no need to, for the parliament to approve it. So the king and the government is okay, here is the law on the Serbian Orthodox Church, we pass it. Here is the law on the Muslim community, we pass it. The Catholics are a different story. I think we'll come to that later. Um, so it takes dictatorship to actually, for the state to be able to pass basic legislation in relation to uh, regulating religious life. Um, and the Serbian Orthodox Church. Um, recognizes the need for this legislation to be adopted. They're not. I mean, they actually. They want the secular legislation to be adopted because that actually allows them to officially um, adopt what they call the church constitution. So the internal canonical documents they can't that can't function in absence of the secular legislation. Um, but what they do not embrace and what they do not accept at all and they begin to not just sort of reject but also sort of actively oppose is the idea that somehow this Serbian tribal to use the term used at the time identity needs to be weakened for the benefit of the Yugoslav identity and that for them is the absolute no go um. And one of the things that the dictatorship does is it bans all political parties and organizations that are based on um, ethnic or religious principle. Um, and that means that, but it doesn't ban religious institutions. so And that diverts the political forces that previously would be operating in public politics. Um, to these well-established religious institutions, the Serbian Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church. Um, And that fuels new levels of competition between these religious institutions, because they become much closely knit to the Serbian or Croatian or Muslim national identities. So in a way, what the state is trying to achieve it's kind of, and the state achieves exactly the opposite of what it's trying to achieve through the dictatorship, if you know what I mean. Um, so I think to come back to the original question, they don't they don't oppose the dictatorship because it is dictatorship. But they don't like it very much because it brings integral Yugoslavism that they don't like. Because they think of it as an existential threat to their existence and prosperity
0: and one of the other things that's happening at this time is something called the God Worshipper movement which is a revival movement in certain rural areas of Serbia um and the 1930s the Serbian Orthodox Church leadership start to engage with this movement how was the God Worshipper movement useful for the church in its competition with the state and with secular nationalism
1: Yeah, um, that is a very interesting story in itself, I think. And in a way, I think it's one, it's broader than just the Serbian or Yugoslav story. I think it's more about, so it's all Southeast European um, dimension comes into it. Um, And to explain about the God-worshippers, I first need to explain about something else. So in the late 19th century, we see not just in Serbian lands, but across the region, um, the growth of so called neo Protestant sects. Um, and there is a large degree of conversion from Orthodox Christianity to these neo Protestant churches or sects in different legislations. They have different status. Um, in the Serbian lands, one of these big religious groups is, is the Netherlands. Um, And they are, so their the legal status changes. Um, they are more or less tolerated but they don't they're, they're actively disliked by the Serbian Orthodox church because they take the the people away from the church into uh the nazarene sect and when this god worshiper movement emerges um around the years of the first world war the church leadership is um at first not quite sure whether this is one more sect or is this something else and the first treated as same way as this neo-Nezeran sect, uh, neo protestant sect, they want to squash it and sort of just destroy it as quickly as possible um, to um, uh, remove the problem altogether. And it is the um, Archbishop, Nikolai Vilimirovich, who um, calls for the church leadership to not reject them. And he says, well, these are not neo-Protestants. These are actually our good members of the Serbian Orthodox Church. Um, uh, they just want to have you know, more pious way of life. Um, so we, we essentially we're talking about a, a kind of an evangelical movement. These are uh, communities that oppose uh, mm, sort of, um, immoral ways of life, consumption of alcohol. They're very focused on Bible studies um, and service and communal life. And William Mirovich is saying, well, I mean, th- 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 this is a good thing. This is how we can bring people back into the folds of the church. So he sort of takes them under his wing uh, already in the 1920s. um, And the movement grows. They actually have uh, a quite impressive membership. Um, they spread from rural areas in northern serbia to uh bosnian territories mainland serbia um so that they're really all over the place they have their own publications um there is no unified structure which also helps them sort of disperse they're quite uh, horizontal in terms of organization um and in the Uh, 1930s, once you know, we're coming back here to the dictatorship and integral Yugoslavism, once the church decides that it needs to present a different, an alternative to this Yugoslav uh, Yugoslavist ideology that is being imposed um, on them from from above, then the God-worship movement, which is very numerous, becomes very useful for the church, because then which becomes to nationalize and then it becomes this very powerful engine of national life from within the church that they already have so in a way we can talk about the sort of co-optation of an evangelical movement within the church structures um, as an attempt to sort of provide the response to some of the challenges that they're facing um, so sort of reinvigorate church life, but also to make it more national, and that is what's happening um, in the 1930s when it becomes increasingly more and more national. We can trace it through the tone of the publications, what the questions they choose to talk about. Um, so there's a quite visible shift between 1920s and 1930s in this sense.
0: Um, that's that's a really interesting story. I um I have a more theoretical question for you now. So you use the term political orthodoxism to describe the church's relationship to politics during the 30s. What do you mean by that term?
1: Um yes, so I mean, as you very well know, the the term I borrowed from the Romanian context uh was it's not my invention, uh was I think for the first time used by Nikifor Kreinig. Um uh, to in was used in the Romanian context. I think I use it as uh a what i think is a useful label to describe um this new attitude that the serbian orthodox church has um about open participation in public politics and the church's desire to actively define and impact public life and i think i want to evoke a sort of a parallel with political catholicism uh, that we see um, um, elsewhere in Europe at the same time. But it's not, of course, the same thing. You know, the, the theology behind it is different, the structures behind it is different. Um, but I, was, I think I'm trying to capture this uh,
0: mm, sort of
1: <laughs> approach and ideas that are originating from within the Serbian Orthodox Church, um, starting with the mid 1930s. Well, now it is the time for the church to become active in public politics and to speak for itself, not on behalf of some other political actor, but actually become an independent political actor. I mean, not to say that they have not had the same politics before. I think they always were very important, but now they're very consciously presenting themselves and they're working on making a church voice, uh, a voice of... East Christian, uh, Orthodox intellectuals and religious thinkers as a distinct voice in the public sphere. They talk about the need to create what they call an Orthodox public opinion. I think this is very interesting. Um, and then they have very different plans about what needs to happen. For this orthodox public opinion to to emerge and then become strong and exist. And some people talk about the need to co op the elites, others talk about the need to support education and do more social work, but the goal is the same. They want to be and be recognized as a legitimate voice in public affairs. And and specifically Serbian Orthodox voice. And this is this process of coming to to terms with the needs to have this voice is I think what I'm trying to describe as political orthodoxism. I don't know if that makes sense from the Romanian point
0: of view. Yeah, no, yes, it does. Um, Yeah, you're using it very similar to the way the Romanians were using it. Uh, And it makes perfect sense to describe what's going on in the thirties, I think. Um, It's a very useful term. I
1: I mean, unlike the, so the Serbian religious actors do not use the term. They are familiar with it. They read Krajnik and and Lucian Blaga and others. They translate some of those of their writings into Serbian, but they don't adopt the term. The term is mine. They it's it's not theirs.
0: Yeah, which so, and uh, in the twenty yeah. first crea- century,
1: I create I creatively sort of.
0: It's uh, an interesting innovation um, and a useful innovation, I think, for the historiography. Hopefully. Um. So then we come to 1934 and king alexander the royal dictator is assassinated and he's replaced by his cousin prince paul and several key advisors how does the church instrumentalize the memories of the dead king um for its own agenda
1: um yes um again a very interesting moment in time i think uh the I mean remember we we've talked about how they don't like the integral Yugoslavism, which is Alexandra's project I mean it's coming from him um and yet after the assassination, they're like okay um we we are gonna forget that the king was we we had disagreements with him um and they make him more or less into this king martyr, so there are um. So there is a sequence of public events, very very interesting, and I think it ties back to what I just was talking about about the how the church is becoming more and more visible in in public affairs, and, and I mean as literally visible they stage processions, uh, the public events of um, unprecedented scale. It involves tens of I don't know, maybe probably not. Tens of hundreds, hundreds of thousands, but I mean, large masses and crowds are gathered by the church in public to celebrate in an obviously religious way certain people and events. And this is qualitatively new. It doesn't happen to the same scale in the 1920s. So this is really 1930s phenomenon. Um, And the, the burial of the of Alexander is one of those things. I think the photograph from the burial is on the cover of the book. Um, So it's an enormously long procession through the streets of Belgrade with all the church leadership and the hierarchs in their vestments, you know, and they're quite opulent as all East Orthodox churches have them, you know, with gold and glitter and it's quite impressive. So, and the king is buried, Um, he's there no, I mean, he's no more there to contradict them. Um, So they turn him into this King Martha who has always been supportive of the Serebid Orthodox Church, this um, selective uh, remembering and selective forgetting happening um, very quickly. Um, And quite interestingly, um, they um, compare him quite often to Prince Lazar, who of course is a, a very important medieval figure, uh, one of the last uh, Serbian princes, who essentially chooses to um, surrender political freedom for eternal salvation of the Serbian nation. Uh, that is the choice he makes um, during the Kosovo battle um, in the Middle Ages, um, and it's one of the foundational legends uh, and foundational myths of Serbian modern Serbian nationalism. So when King Alexander is compared uh, over and over again in many publications to Prince Lazar, it elevates him, without officially making him a saint, to this kind of saintly, sacred level. and, you know, this 1939, the uh, five year anniversary of the assassination, uh, there are big festivals and uh, uh, many, many publications um year. So they run for a year uh, done by the Serbian Orthodox Church, so pushing this narrative of Alexander as martyr and saint and the supporter and the protector of the Serbian Orthodox Church and the Serbian nation. Um, I mean, it doesn't have to correspond with the reality of Alexander's rule. It's irrelevant. Um, and they're using the fig, this imagined memory of um, Alexander to critique the current government. Um, because also, the, I mean, this is an unbeatable card. The government also can't really say anything bad about the late king either. So it's very smart move um by the Serbian Orthodox Church because um, you know, they can't be contradicted really on the, on, on on that one. Mm. So people, and there so is very useful. Yeah, yeah. That people are very, very useful. Absolutely.
0: Yes. Um you mentioned this earlier when we were talking about um, minority politics and religious equality. But one of the big conflicts between the church and the state after Alexander's death is the signing of a concordat with the Vatican in 1935. Um, And the Orthodox Church seems to have been very unhappy that the state reached an agreement with the Catholic churches. How did they try to stop it? Uh,
1: Well, they did stop it very successfully. Uh, The So the Concordat is being negotiated for a very long time. Uh, Alexander is actually very insisting that it needs to be negotiated, and it's almost done even before his assassination. And then um, Prime Minister Milan Stoydinovich brings it to Parliament. The Parliament has been reinstated, meanwhile, um, in 1935, um, and the text of the proposed legislation is being made public. And the Serbian Orthodox Church is very strongly and very publicly is opposed to it. They criticize it. Uh, the sort of the, the public discourse is that um, it gives unfair advantage to the Catholic Church vis-à-vis the Serbian Orthodox Church and violates the principle of religious equality. Blah blah blah. Um, in reality, I think they just don't like that uh, um, it puts on paper that the Serbian Orthodox Church is not the main state. Religious institution, um, even though they they're not, uh, and nobody says that they that, that they are, but somehow they they, they feel very hurt by it. Um, it also has something to do with uh, you know financial arrangements and uh, land reform and other things. Um, but essentially, by 1937, uh, there is a huge sort of public debate. Very heated uh, discussion. Uh, very uh, stuff, publications. The tone of publications becomes almost violent uh, on on both sides. Um, and finally, there is there's a big protest, street protest in Belgrade that is led by the Serbian Orthodox Church against the government, who's pushing for the Concordat, and they um, various oppositional political um, actors um, join the the street protests, including, of all, of all people, the communists. I mean, it's like it's so it's not because they embrace the Serbian Orthodox Church, but they use the opportunity, you know, to there are people in the streets who are going to join them. And it is in the middle of the street protests that the patriarch dies. And of course, the rumors and the conspiracy theories immediately merged has he been poisoned? Uh, and it, there's no reason to suggest that he was. Um, and, but it's very strong. So the government collapses. The prime minister has to resign. It seems that the Serbian Orthodox Church has, you know, has won this battle. Um, but I think for me, what's important is that I mean, not what happens to the Concordat, but it's we see how within a span of just a few years. The Serbian orthodox church has actually become a very vocal public political actor they have the capacity to organize people to mobilize people when they say something people are listening when they when they bring people out in the street people are following them so i mean the the, this is we'll be going back to the issue of political orthodoxism this is a qualitative change. We do not see this kind of conscious efforts to become publicly visible and important in the 1920s. And, and we, I haven't mentioned this before, and we didn't have the time to talk about it, but one of the things that allowed the church actually to become that important in public was that throughout the 1920s and early 1930s, they are investing a lot of money and effort and time into raising the educational level of their leadership so traditionally they would send their best students uh, to um, seminaries in the russian empire uh, mostly to kiev and odessa uh, in the 19th century um, but in the 20th century um, so before the first world war and in the interwar period they actually sent quite a lot of people to to Switzerland, to Bern, to the um, old Catholic uh, department of Bern University, um, where future leaders of the Serbian Orthodox Church are defending doctoral dissertations in philosophy um, and theology. They're sending people to Leipzig, uh, to um, other German, to Heidelberg, I think. So, um, And by the middle of the 1930s, they have a mass critical enough people, you know, this critical mass of highly educated people who can teach the next generation at home. They don't need to send people out to other European intellectual centers anymore, which of course means that you can educate way more people at home. But because you don't, you don't need to arrange for the travel and pay for the stay, and then maybe some of them don't return, et etc. et cetera. So we have a whole new generation of highly educated um intellectuals coming up just before the start of the second world war and they participate in articulating this what they call the orthodox public opinion so it's not i mean it, it's just it's, it's all of these things coming together the yugoslav state pushing integral yugoslavism on them um the the Church as a religious institution not being happy with church-state relationships and the level of support they get, and also the, I mean, the actual, the intellectual means they now have to articulate highly sophisticated positions.
0: Um, So it all comes together just before the Second World War and then all falls apart straight away. Um, But the church allies themselves with the military during the Second World War. Uh, What was their position on foreign policy during, during the war?
1: Yeah, um, that is a very complicated question. I think just to come back a little bit to what happened just before the war, one of the big, and, and I think it's it will become important for the conversation about the war, one of the big public festivals and celebrations and the key ideas of the late 1930s um, are, sort of revolves around the figure of Saint Sava, who is this medieval Serbian saint, the founder of the original... Serbian um, church in the Middle, Age, uh, Middle Ages. Um, so he's picked up by um, Nikolai Velimirovic, who is one of the key intellectuals um, and figures in the Serbian Orthodox Church in the interwar period. And Velimirovic uses Sava to build up what he formulates as Svetosavle, sometimes it's translated as Saint Savanism. So this idea of fusing East Orthodox Christianity, in particular, it's Serbian version with Serbian nationalism as a philosophy and ideology and a way of life, which supposedly should have universal value. So this is Vilimirovic's big idea. This is what he uses the God-worshipper movement to um, spread around. And in 1935, 1937, the, there are big celebrations. There's a whole year of St. Sava when um, everybody in Yugoslavia is supposedly celebrating him, whether they are Orthodox or Muslim or Catholic. It causes another round of protests by from non-Orthodox communities. Um, but it is there in the public very, very much. Um, so this idea of St. So St. Sava as the unifying figure that brings together all these ideas of public presence of the church, its support for the Serbian nation. Um, it's you know, fighting secularization, saving not just the Serbian nation, but saving the humanity from the impeding collapse and doom for the lack of morals and whatever other evils communism and liberalism and atheism bring to, to, to life. And I think it is against this background that the decisions are being made what to do in the context of the Second World War. Because if we look at uh, the actions and positions of key figures in the Serbian Orthodox leadership um, during the Second World War, uh, there's there's a whole array. Some people support the uh, collaborationist government, uh for different reasons to save the institution to save the church for personal ambition some people like williamirovich and dodic the new patriarch um oppose the occupation uh they're very anti-german they're very pro-serbian they're put under house arrest um uh, and then they even briefly interned in Dachau, um in the concentration camp but in, in in the bid for political prisoners not um together with the um everybody else um uh, but it doesn't stop velomirovich from writing his most anti-semitic ever uh book while he's being interned in Daha. that is a separate story <laughs> which we can talk about um so i mean and i think this is important to, for us to, for me to underline and i think for people to understand um being opposed to German occupation during the Second World War uh, in Serbia does not make you a pro-democrat. And of course, we have not just the the Second World War happening in the occupation, but also there's a civil war going on between the royalist Chetniks of Draža Mihailović and the partisans of Tito and a bunch of other smaller groups and uh, members of the church, priests, um, bishops. In rank ranking file, join different political groups and, 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 and actors. Um, so we can't say that the church did this during the Second World War. I mean, that would be very inaccurate. Um, what we can say is that in 1941, after Prince Paul signs the uh, the tripartite pact with um, Nazi Germany, basically allying Yugoslavia with Nazi Germany, there is a coup that dethrones him and the school is strongly inspired and supported by the leadership of the serbian orthodox church so in this moment just before i mean and it's the coup that then triggers the the german attack um, and the bombardment of, of belgrade so in this crucial moment in 1941 the, the key leadership of the serbian orthodox church opposes official foreign policy of the um, of the Yugoslav state and Prince Paul. Then, once the war drink, comes to Yugoslavia, once the, the, the country is occupied, it differs. Some people join uh, uh, Ljotic and his uh, sort of para fascist collaborationist movement called Zbor. Um, so, Dmitry Naidanović, who is one of the of key intellectual voices, and he's a close student of, of Wilimirovich, joins um, Zbor, uh, but interestingly enough, also uses his influence to negotiate the release of Wilimirovich and uh, Dozic from their the internment in Dahal. So, I mean, I think it's it's what I'm trying to say it's a very complex story, and I think it deserves a separate book on its own about what happens to the different figures from the Serbian Orthodox Church during the years of the occupation. We will need access to the church archives for that. That I I don't know how to write this without access to the archives. So what I had in the book, I think, is just scratching the surface of it, demonstrating the possibility of different trajectories.
0: Well, there's something you could do with the rest of your summer then.
1: Absolutely, yes, you know, done and dusted.
0: I feel like you've convinced me that even if you're not interested in religious history, understanding the history of the church um, totally transforms the way that you think about politics and nationalism um, in Serbia and Yugoslavia during this period. Um, so thank you so much for taking the time to share this story with us. Um, I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you for the invitation once again. Um, it was great to talk about the book. Um, Hopefully somebody else will uh, be um, interested enough to read it or maybe parts of it. So thank you very much for having me.
0: Thank you.